welcome to The Big Remote. My name is Jerry Scullion. I'm an independent service designer and innovation consultant and educator. We're in the middle of an unprecedented social experiment with so many people working remotely and many entire families staying home. Yet there's so much that still connects us together and that we can learn from. The Big Remote is a podcast of people's remote stories. Maybe this is all new and they're discovering a new lifestyle. Maybe they're working remotely all this time and now everyone else in their company has joined them or perhaps their freelance life has turned upside down. The Big Remote dives into guests' remote work and collaboration tips, remote life hacks, tips on entertaining yourself and your kids, personal stories and more. In this episode, I speak with the wonderful, one of my favourite human beings, John Thackra, author and bioregional designer and urban rural reconnector speaker and all-around inspirational human being john thacker a very warm welcome to the big remote how are you thank you jerry i'm actually in i've decided i'm in day 55 of some kind of lockdown which is longer really? than most people wow. the reason is that um my wife had a sort of illness uh, you know 55 days ago which caused her to go into hospital for a few days which thankfully ended well but she came out just in time for the whole virus thing to hit and ask her to go into lockdown so we had 10 wow. days of weirdness associated with health then then we yeah. kind of glided effortlessly into what we're into now so um yeah. we are in a small town with 4000 people and it's incredibly quiet, but it, things continue to function more or less, uh, and we have no major practical problems at the moment. So I think we're pretty, well, I know we're very fortunate to be here at the moment. So, uh, so far, so good. Yeah. When we were chatting in Barcelona, you, you introduced me to a few things like life-centered design. And, you know, we, we did that really positive podcast that went down, you know, a treat amongst the human-centered design network. And it caused lots of conversation. I know Andy, who is the co-host of Big Remote, um, when, when Andy was with Fjord, um, he wrote uh, a wonderful piece as part of Fjord Trends this year uh, called Life Centered Design, which that conversation uh, that we had inspired that, that trend this year. So I wanted to call that out, first of all. But when we were chatting, we, yeah, no, because Life Centered Design is, is, I think we're at that point where, um, you know, we need to start having the, the bigger uh, conversations. The world is sick. There's no getting around that fact at the moment. Speaking of which, Andy Plain's pinging me on my computer here at the moment, so I'll have to mute him. But um, so, you know, the world is sick at the moment. And, you know, it, a lot of it is reverting back to basics now. Yeah. And, you know, your book, um, How to Thrive in the Next Economy, was something that when I... Um, I actually had bought it before I met you, but I remember you signed it when I brought it over to Barcelona. Um, really inspired me to to start growing my own food, and I wanted to do it last year. And as I said, I, I missed the boat and the times and the seasons and stuff. But this year, I was I was ahead of the game, and I'd already ordered stuff. I want to chat today a little bit more around advice and why people should start growing their own food and um, thinking about how they might get started because I know from reading even the first couple of chapters of your book um i remember i was like wow this is this is all stuff that was completely foreign to me but all made sense so let's talk to me um around soil john talk to me how you got interested in soil because it's not something a london boy royal college of art um you know sort of employee who starts looking at the soil and kind of goes i want to learn more about the soil how did you get into that that world I, I did it in two ways, Jerry. One was 
like I normally do, reading lots of books and blogs and uh, texts about people saying, "How do we? What is the fundamental way to think about this thing called the environment?" And everybody said, "Well, it, it all begins with the soil." So I had a kind of mental uh, understanding for many years that soil was important, but you know, frankly, didn't take it like personally. And then um, a while, you know, about six, seven years ago, I was actually talking to a friend of mine who's a bread fanatic who is constantly trying to get me to make bread, which I have to say I'm not really doing properly yet. But he was just saying that bread is, um, the quality of bread is related to the quality of the grain. He said the quality of the grain is, of course, it connects to the quality of the soil. And at that moment, he bent down and got a handful of soil and stuck it, you know, his tongue into it. I went, what are you doing? He said, I'm tasting the soil. And so, and he said, have a taste. And I tasted what was indeed some dust. And I said, well, it tastes dusty, if I may be honest, Craig. He said, yes, but it's actually, uh, it's not so bad. I can tell the kind of wouldn't be bad for growing grain in. So Mm. he's like not a farmer, but he knows a lot of grain growers. And through him, I then um, ended up uh, meeting people who, operate with one foot in the world of food and one foot in the world of soil, soil science, but also soil testing and also Mm. soil advocacy. (laughs) And there's a fabulous uh, woman called Abby Rose who has another podcast actually called Farmerama, who I met at a big food event somewhere, and she was explaining how um, you can't really, you can give people lectures about food all day long, you can do lectures about the soil, but it's only when you kind of, get them to taste it physically, that's when people really change. So Mm. as far as I'm concerned nowadays, I don't give lectures about soil, but if I'm with anyone who says, let's go outside and find some soil and taste it and prod it and put our hands in and see what we can learn from that. It it is transformative. Yeah. Yeah, I can hear you now. That last bit there, like the the internet slowed down a little bit there. Um, But you're saying you go, go outside and look at the soil. Yeah, uh, just touch it, feel it, taste it, smell it. And then uh, uh, about a while later, I did actually learn a practice called the soil tasting ceremony, which um, an American artist invented and which I did at a summer school that I do um, on an island in uh, Sweden called Grinda. And that was just amazing because um, what it's a formalized way of getting uh, design people or architects or policymakers to think about it seriously. Basically, we went around this island, we found nice sort of growing shrubs or herbs that we could make into a tisane, you know, a drink. Mm-hmm. And then we bring a bunch of the leaves and then a handful of the soil back to a table. And then we make the tisane and put it in a glass. And then we put the soil in a little bowl next to it. And the kind of tasting ceremony was drink the tisane, you know, mm-hmm. the, the blackberry or the the mint or whatever, and then taste the soil and see if you can taste a connection. And we all did it, and I'm fairly sure nobody could taste it, you know, make a considered judgment, but it, everybody was just so silent, and they'd never, including me, done this in their whole lives before, and you suddenly thought, ah, the, what I put in my mouth is connected to what, what the soil is like. Ah, it's all connected. And then, yeah, it was very powerful. And anyway, I've done that many times. You can do that anyway. You just need a, some soil and some plants and some hot water. And yeah. uh, you can make your own soil taste. It's fantastic. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so then after, I remember when we were chatting, like maybe it was in the book actually, it was the whole kind of picking up some soil and there was a spoonful of soil and there's more um, biomes, I think is is the correct term, in a, in a spoonful of, of soil. And there Healthy is soil, like, yeah, there's more bacteria, uh, which of course now we're scared about, but yeah, lots, as many as there are people in the world in a kind of spoonful of healthy soil. I This which, is just me quoting other people yeah and um yeah but it's just uh you think you stare at what looks like a you know a spoonful of soil is it really mm. but the, the, the tasting and the kind of mentally and but also physically connecting the, the soil in your hand to the food that you put in your mouth begins to kind of make that connection that we've lost in mm. our kind of modern world between the health of the soil and the health of our body are the same thing which i just totally think is the one of the big explanations for this whole virus nightmare is that we've just lost this attention to the fact that if the, the world is unhealthy we're going to be unhealthy surprise surprise and so without going into the whole kind of arguments about who did what or who forgot to do what um i don't think most people would disagree that the world is an unhealthy condition and that yeah. the virus is the latest of the unpleasant consequences we're having of that so but for me, the most important thing is not to get into a kind of terrible, kind of guilty sort of fit, but to say, okay, if the world is unhealthy, what practical steps can we take to make it healthy again? And that is where my book started and where all my work the last five, ten years has mm. been. What are the practical things that a normal person can do to make their little, you know, make the world healthier in however small a way? And that's, yeah. I find it very kind of comforting. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I remember in, I don't know what chapter it was, but I remember there was a bit that you said from cure to care. Um, and I think we're at that point where I know Dr. Oh, John yes. Curran has been speaking about this, about reconnecting with your neighbors and reconnecting with people that you might have lost touch yes. with and reaching out to people. And I think we're at that point now as a civilization. I don't mean to pontificate, but um there's definitely an increased amount of reconnection happening amongst my circle. Um, yes. You know, getting to that point of, of caring again. So walk me through, you know, where you believe we're at and what we can do more of to, to help kind of thrive in the, in the, the, the new economies, as you'd say. Well, I don't think it's, I can walk you through it, but I, it, I think the word care and the word connection are the two powerful words to hold on to. If you, you know, we've all been educated I think, in slightly abstract ways, but just very practically, you know, where you are today or where I am, caring for each other and caring for our place uh, just yeah. seems to me things that we can practically do. I can walk out of this room and go and check on my neighbor. I can go and see if my compost heap is healthy. I can uh, go and talk to the guy who sells the food and say, how are you doing? You know, is this hitting you badly? I can talk to the, the brave people who run the chemist shop and say, how's it going? You know, just um, I can I can and do thank everybody I meet for the, yeah. the guys who run the trash, the trash collection. I say, thank you for doing this. If you weren't yeah. doing this, we'd be in a really Absolutely. Be horrible. Absolutely. And they all... They don't get thanked for doing that. You know, they do. They do this jobs often for tiny amounts of pay and not much gratitude. And then without them, our lives would be just uh, even in a terrible state. So yeah, just yeah, thanking no. people and then seeing little things. That's all. You know, we can all do that. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. It's w one of the things that I noticed right at the start of this was I was actually, um, I was about to commence a project for, for a museum in Ireland and I, I was chatting to them and we were talking about how people had become disconnected from the interconnectedness of the world, right? And what I mean by that was, you know, people had become so just blasé that things were arriving in the shops like magic, okay? So stuff from China... Yeah. I was getting created in these sweatshops and all of a sudden it was just arriving in the high streets in, in you know the UK and around the world. And suddenly when China froze and went into lockdown and the shipments stopped, you know, and things started to slow down as regards the availability, I think it had a knock-on effect in society where people were starting to say, oh, what happens over there? impacts us here now unfortunately it was at a materialistic level at that stage but now i think you know with the virus spreading at such a rate it's you know spread in the last number of weeks people realize now that you know they're our neighbors even though they're over in china you know or iran wherever it is like what happens to them is going to happen to us and it's brought us closer together as a civilization so that all kind of piece is is something that i i can actually almost physically see you know because now we're starting to change our behaviors around food in particular in especially in my own household um you know the the amount of food wastage has massively just disappeared like we we don't waste food and we were probably um you know a, we're a young family and things were left in the fridge and things were going off and things were being binned where now we're suddenly reshaping our our sort of our, our dietary habits around the availability of food you there? Still there? Yes, I'm here. Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Well, I wasn't too sure if you were going to say something. But yeah, I, I, sure. I, was, I was starting to get hungry as, as Jerry talked about his dietary habits. And uh, <laughs> I have to say that uh, as we have a waste, no waste kind of, you know, theory. But uh, for some reason, we had too much of a certain kind of flour. So we ended up making, well, Christy, my wife, made some Irish soda bread two days ago, which has been a revelation, I must say. Yes, yes. Although yes. it seems to have a rather high sugar content, which may explain why it's so delicious. But um, we <laughs> are one of say, the many the Irish soda bread is beautiful. beautiful. Yes, it's beautiful, but uh, it's too Moorish, and uh, therefore uh, that, that defeats the object of living efficiently if you end up eating twice as much bread as you've just yeah. cooked. But anyway, we'll, get, we'll, we'll, we'll resolve that balance question. But yeah, it's very practical stuff. So, you know, making things. But I think that in terms of food, I mean, I've spent a lot of time trying to figure it out. The one fundamental thing that I think that we can all do is to try and connect with the people who grow or make food in a very mm. practical way, in ways that we don't in the past. Because I just think it's, uh, why should we expect farmers to produce all our food with take all the risk and be on their own and be you know treated badly why should that be why should we accept that why can't we look for ways to do it with them you know share farming is one of these words yeah. and in our own case we've discovered that in lots of places all over europe there's a kind of patchy supplies of flour for our bread and then this what used to be a theoretical thing in my head called the cooperative grains movement is a real thing in certain parts of the world where you go and do a joint venture with the farmer who grows your grains hmm. and you share the risk. So you put in 100 euros or 200 euros at the beginning of the season, you then get a certain amount of kilos of grain or flour later on. And if it all fails, then you share the failure. But if it, in your case, it's 100 euros, but it's not the farmer going bust. Yeah. And I just think that makes so much sense 
that we relearn ways of being, you know, participants in the food system mm. rather than waiting for somebody to deliver it to us and then yeah, getting very stroppy and upset when it doesn't come. <laughs> yeah, or the package is broken. It's it's really true and it's it's something that I've thought about deeply in the last couple of days in particular, especially as I'm sowing um, new vegetables and stuff. And I was like, actually, you know what? I might have a lot of spinach in another uh, <laughs> in another two months. I wonder, can I exchange some of the spinach for something else? And I was like, wonder how I'd connect with other veg growers in my area. And then how would we do this without actually meeting? And, you know, it might be a case. Well, of like, well I can, I can, there's, a, there's a lot of uh, people doing activities there. Just one place to look at is called the Open Food Network, uh, which is some people, actually Brits, apart, Brits and French people, have a whole variety of answers to that question. How do I connect with other growers? It's not that it's a simple turnkey solution where you just press a button on your phone and somebody comes and takes your spinach. Absolutely. But they've, they've all thought it through about what are the range of different ways in which somebody with too much spinach can get it into the hands of somebody who needs it. Mm. And it, the, the, the solutions to that question will vary from place to place. And it'll involve all sorts of you know small and big activities. So. I do recommend it because I, I studied a lot about this whole farm to plate thing, and it's such a huge subject that the you know the investors and the hedge funds are getting into it, and then it all gets horribly distorted because what started off as passionate individuals, you know, working with a farmer, you know, the, the old community supported agriculture, when the hedge funds come in and the big you know digital platforms, it all gets out of control and has to be faster and bigger and you know fancier and yeah. yeah, zippier, and then the the quality of the relationship suffers, and, the, and then you end up destroying the thing you thought you were trying to expand. Anyway, the Open Food Network is a good place to start um, for educating yourself on what's available in Ireland. Ireland has all sorts of things, maybe by other names, I don't know, but um, yeah. once you start to look, you'll find a lot, for sure. Okay. The, the internet, using it in that way, can be very powerful as well. But one of the things that you mentioned there about a few minutes ago around speaking to your chemist and asking, how's it going? And do you think the the, the internet has had a lot to do with um, the disconnect of, of people? Um, a, I think, how, yeah, well, I don't know what it, I Actually, think let's that. Pause, let, let's pause that question hmm. because it's, it's, a, it's a question that, could could end us end up in a very long question and not get anywhere. Yes. It's it's something I've just I often thought. Of. I think that uh, to be honest, Jerry, the, the disconnects are in so many different directions. But the fundamental one is that we are disconnected from nature, and from that, everything else, so to speak, flows. You could mm -hmm. say, and I was very influenced by these um, individuals like Raj Patel, who said, "Well, it all goes back to the." invention of commodities when when imperialists and people sailed off in wooden ships to bring back up you know shiploads of cotton or uh, tea. cocoa or tapa or tea and then the connection between the the product that came here uh, as a commodity and where it was grown and who grew it and under what circle all that was broken but that was way way before even normal capitalism let alone the internet so the yeah. disconnect with the land and the, the things that uh, support us has all sorts of roots of different ages. And I think the internet is another one of them, but not the main cause. Yeah, no, absolutely. 
So with the whole um, COVID-19 pandemic, John, um, what, what do you, how has it impacted your life and how do you see it impacting your life over the next 12 months? Uh, it has basically caused more or less all my projects to kind of freeze um, saying, oh my God, what's happening? Because my work tends to involve going somewhere and running a workshop or giving yeah. a talk or meeting people doing a project. And I've been doing that for many, many years. All 100% stopped and pretty much most of the income that I would have been paid for that. So I'm in that situation yeah. with many other people. And so, and what I'm really trying to do is to not leap into hyper action and sort of turning every single thing into a virtual equivalent of itself. And yeah. I kind of almost as a practice said, I'm not for a couple of months, I'm not going to suddenly rewrite everything as a virtual version of the other thing. Rather say, well, this is a long term shift and it's a profound shock. What kinds of relationships do people need that they have missed in the past that I can help? Um, them make. So, give you a concrete example. I was invited to do a workshop in Mexico for a wonderful woman called Jimena, who runs a kind of biennial there. She said, you must come and do a workshop about food systems and urban food, and how can we connect urban food to the farmers of Mexico? And I thought that was marvelous. I'm now having a conversation with her about, well, of course, I'm not going to go there and do a, do a, a workshop, but maybe we can have a conversation during the year about what are the current um, relationships between Mexican um, citizens and the places their food comes from, where are the gaps, who is doing the most inspiring kind of remedial or creative work. And that is, so to speak, the story so far in Mexico. And my contribution will be, uh, let me just introduce you to person X, Y, or Z that can maybe have a conversation with your person, your project leader. And so I'll, I'll just give you an example. So I know that they have a whole variety of urban farming kind of campaigns in Mexico City. I did a, uh, an event last year called the Social Food Forum for Europeans, in which I met some people from Madrid who are doing by far the most interesting work in Europe in getting uh, urban farming into the agenda of a city, very practical stuff like, uh, you know, how the regulations are shaped and so on. My contribution is rather than flying to Mexico and having a kind of talk, I will introduce my friends in Madrid to my friends in Mexico and they can talk to each other. So that's in a very practical way um, yeah. what I'm going to do. Connecting and therefore, people. they both know more than I do about urban farming in their respective cities. So I don't need to be there anyway. It's not my job is to know that they exist and to say you should talk to these two people should talk to each other. Yeah. And then um, Himmela, who's the curator, and me as the helper, our job is to introduce them to each other and make sure that they are you know have good internet connection and maybe we can record the conversation and share it. But at the end of the day, we're connecting people to each other who can help mm. each other. So that's what. Yeah, at the risk of sounding no, obvious, that's what I'm doing. As you're saying that, John, there's definitely potential to do something like that with the Human Centered Design Network. With it's it's global. Like we've got we've got lots of listeners around the world now. So that maybe this is something. We can I mean, I I, I I tell you the problem. I, I can think of a million things. So well, I'm sure we all can. But just a very mm -hmm. practical thing. This whole business about 3D printing ventilators and making masks. You know, which we've all been doing. Hmm. I'm not doing it, but I must know 10 groups now who are in one way or another making kind of sort of open source ventilator projects. 
And then I have a friend who is in the kind of tech, you know, the medical technology industry said, this is all great, but that is not, the production is not the problem. The problem is procurement and regulations and weird shit at the level of who pays for them and who kind of approves them to be working. So in, I think this is a good example for the HCD community. Many of your, yeah. uh, in your community must for sure be involved in some of those projects. How can, that community remove the blockage of regulations and weird local procurement rules and all that stuff because in a funny way that's a good example of where a community with expertise in something called human centered design the design and the manufacturing is frankly not the hardest bit as far as i can tell it's the it's yeah. the getting the system to work and that's i don't know how the community could do that but if you could have that discussion yeah that's what's missing there's definitely something we can, we can explore there. Like just going back to the po point of reconnecting and connecting people. I had a conversation on Saturday and I do get, you know, looped into these threads being in my, my role at the Human Centre Design Network. Um, and it was from someone who's on the front line in Ireland uh, who, they're, they're a doctor and they, they wanted to raise some of the things that they're seeing um, in terms of the end of life experience and how it's very isolated and, um, you know, could dramatically be improved in terms of bringing their loved ones into the room via technology and so forth. And I was like, wow, if this was, you know, non-pandemic times, I'd be like, that is an, an incredible project, something that I'd, you know, love to be part of. But straight away, I was like, look, this is, this is extremely complex. End of life is probably you know, if not the most sacred thing in, in the, you know, around apart from birth, it needs to be treated with, with utmost care and respect. And I try to, you know, rack my brains as like, I know people who, who are in this space and, you know, sent a few emails to a few people and connected them with it, with a tech company who I know who have played in this space in terms of hospital technology people and putting them together and having the conversation, but just going back to the procurement piece, they, that was on Saturday, they spoke on Sunday they had a meeting at the executive level with the board in, in Ireland on Monday. And now there's uh, prototypes being um, rolled out today. So that's a, a pretty good example about, you know, cutting through the red tape, getting it. So there, it's in a hospital now in Ireland. Hopefully we see something like that um, happen because like, you know, as, you, as you've said, like you know, technology can be used for, for, for good connecting people with you know supply food and and so forth but there's definitely potential there to help improve the experiences of people who are who are sufferers and victims of this virus that's very reassuring to hear jerry and i think the other thing i would say is of, of course there must be all sorts of ways in which designers can help make this uh whole experience less awful or more meaningful and I think the main thing is, and I'm sure you would say the same thing, make sure that the discussions about you know, some kind of solutions include people who know about it, like the carers or the, uh, the, you know, the people who are dealing with, with dying and departing on a daily basis, have them be at the center of it. But that's what your community is about. So I know that. So yeah. make sure that the, the people that's who it. know that it's not about bandwidth or whether the screen is upright, you know, it's, it's, it's little things and it's, uh, you know, it's about, I don't know what it's about, it's about lots of things, but get yeah. them to be at the center of the conversation. That's the main thing. Included. Yeah, absolutely. In included in, yeah. in these kind of conversations. But right. yeah, it, 
it is it is a crazy time um that we're living in at the moment and i think we're all going through this together which is which is somewhat reassuring that it's not like just happening in one part of the world and we're like you know we're all looking over there i think everyone is feeling this um so they are yeah. and i think that we need to also help each other uh when things are so frantic to slow down i've been kind of not particularly good example of that but in general uh try to help each other not rush around looking for things to do i find it very distressing the stories of my friends with young children who they feel so stressed that they're trying to keep up with these academic programs and home yeah. teaching I, I think it's ridiculous that uh, people should have pressure of that kind at this moment they should be anything that is pressure should be uh, go and find a some nature or even if it's a plant on the wall of your balcony and to have a calm moment with something living rather than kind of get stressed about homework or classes but so, but we can help each other do that because i think it's i kind of i need help to kind of not get overwrought at seeing yeah. things that, you know don't provide today so we need to help each other be calm and yeah. we have to help each other kind of just one step at a time one day at a time that's the most important thing i remember we were speaking about that about you know trying to slow down and um I don't mean to be too, uh, I don't know what the word is, but whenever I go out to the garden and I start, you know, trying to plant and start to remove weeds and cut the grass even or plant new things, it definitely makes me slow down and makes me live in the moment. It is a form of mindfulness for me anyway. It's taking that breath. I, no, I think for most people, and a lot of, I don't know how many people listening are stuck in a place without a garden, probably a lot. But yeah. I learned a new word this week called botanizing, which is sounds a bit odd, but it's basically that wherever you are, however sort of urban nightmare sort of situation or concrete jungle, there will always be something green growing somewhere. And so botanizers are ones who make it their task to go and look for the look at or find a weed in a crack on the wall of their building and find out the life story of that weed. And there's people all over the world do this as a practice and it's not quite the same as gardening but it's a kind of form of getting concentrating on another thing so i'm uh, uh, yes but, but look up botanizing and there's a guy in des moines iowa who has a beautiful blog about this subject of going and finding a kind of weed in a kind of very unpromising wasteland <laughs> finding out the life story of that weed and uh, by the, before you know it, days have gone by and you haven't thought about all the other stuff. So you just thought about this plant. And uh, I think it's fantastic. I must yeah, no, absolutely. There, there is a, um, I, I don't mean to throw technology at the problem, but there is an app that I, I've started to use in the last number of weeks called Picture This. I don't know if you're aware of it. Yes. It's a, do you know I it? I am, yes. Okay. I do. You can take a picture of the leaf of any plant and it'll um, tell you the name of the plant and its its origin. So I went around my garden because I've let things grow a little bit more um, naturally through intent in the last couple of weeks. And my the, the house is, is about 100 years old and it's only had two or three owners, ourselves included. And the first owner grew lots of rhubarb and lots of gooseberries and raspberries. And since I've let the grass grow a little bit longer, I did the first cut a couple of weeks ago. Um, but there's these sprouts start to come up through the middle and I was like, what are they like? You know, I, I thought this was, this was newly sown grass last year and it is the old roots and the old seedlings have, have come back through the grass 
And sure enough, nice. it's a hundred year old um, sort of raspberry and um, gooseberry. And there was a few other um, orchids, but to think that they were planted in 1927, I think it is, it's just kind of crazy, and it's still alive, and they're still, you know, ready to thrive. Oh, that's You're saying about your wife, Christy's got a load of books that. Uh, um... Yeah, well, during this time, and this is, you know, the, the sort of we are the sort of third generation sort of peak oil people, or people older even than me, who've been going on about how, um, just, you know, modern civilization is too energy intense and too complex, and it can't go on. And I kind of came to that quite late via the environmental movement, basically in the late 80s, early 90s. And so I'm not at all a kind of lifetime green or anything like that. But so I persuaded myself intellectually, yeah, this can't go on. But then this was like, as I say, you know, 10, 15 years ago, it did go on. And now it isn't going on, uh, or not in any normal way. And um, it's a kind of weird, uh, yeah, disjunction between having known something, you know, intellectually many years ago, and then it actually happening. They're very two very different things. Yeah. And I think everybody in my weird niche world of slightly cranky, uh, green yeah. and uh, uh, sort of uh, end of it all people, we've all been saying similar things, the speed with which stuff happens has amazed us, and we're the ones who are supposed to have been thinking about it. So mm. um, it's extraordinary, quite yeah, extraordinary. No, it, it is. It's it's crazy. Like um, even in Ireland, I was explaining to uh, Sophie yesterday that when I decided to order, you know, seedlings because we've got a three and a half year old little girl and I want to teach her about, you know, I teach her about worms and soil and all this kind of stuff. A lot of it came from your book you know like nice. the economy. and you know she she was like i'm gonna beat it on its head <laughs> i was like no 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 no! don't beat the worm don't beat the worm look at it what's it doing and she's like it's going into the ground and i go yeah that's where we wanted to go and we wanted to aerate the uh, the soil like you know and it's, that's really good for us like you know like we're making our compost and you know so my little girl is starting to take ground but when i decided to order these seedlings you know um what came back was um that uh, all the seedlings have been sold out and uh, Ireland had basically taken to the web to buy seedlings because everyone was probably, there's probably a lot of fear uh, happening at the same time in the culture and uh, people are like, okay, we need to grow our own food. So like it, it, this happened uh, in days. Yeah. yeah. The days. Uh, in our case, uh, my, I have a compost heap and I think you should absolutely encourage your daughter to see it as a kind of worm zoo rather than obsess about it being a production thing because yeah. I have a compost heap which is a, probably 10 years old and I, I now hate taking anything off it to put into plants because I think it's such a healthy ecosystem in its own right and I've regarded it as a kind of refuge for worms and uh, I tend to it on that basis and it gives me a lot of happiness whereas Every time we try and grow tomatoes or things around our place, uh, it never goes well. So I think I'm separated in my mind compost growing as a kind of practice from food growing. The other yeah. thing is that where we are in France, like there is a lot of food around. That's a fortunate thing. And more or less everybody knows more about how to grow it than we do. So based on our previous experience of you know being doomers and survivalists we said well let the food experts do their thing and we'll figure out another contribution we can make so that's kind of where we got to yeah john while i have you on here now i'm you know even though i've started recording i, I could splice parts of these into the conversation um how are you uh introducing yourself these days 
Um, so like I've got a blurb that I'll read out, but in this episode, it's, well, it's a good question. So I've because uh, I struggle I when I look at your website and your Twitter. I'm like, mm, how's he framing himself? Is this well, throughout my life, I've changed my job title and my job description, and because I'm one of those people that can't decide what they're doing and will, hopes that it'll become yeah. clear when they grow up what they do, and I haven't quite reached that point yet after several decades. Um, I call myself a bioregional designer and an urban-rural reconnector, which are two um, practices and activities that I have actually been doing after the last five years or so. Um, but I also continue to write books from time to time and I give yeah. talk, but everything I, that is in my kind of Twitter head or whatever is pre virus. And so yeah. I have to, like everybody else think, well, am I, you know, I'm not going to be going around the world doing talks. I'm not going to be going around yeah. the world doing workshops. I'm not going to be going around yeah. the world doing very much at all. I haven't physically moved from here, uh, for yeah. Yeah, three months, three months. Yeah. So so it's I'm coming like towards. Yeah. How do I do those activities? How can I be of service or just kind of a good friend to people with just mm -hmm. what I can by sitting here rather than kind of scurrying around, which I've done for the most of my adult life? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's like uh, many of my peers have suffered, myself included, like loss of income because, you know, even though I've completely curtailed flying, like I was doing one flight this year, that was it. <clears throat> that was cancelled. Mm -hmm. And then loads of my workshops were cancelled so everything is trying to move and move online at a rapid rate like so luckily i've got all my gear I, and all that stuff set up but it's still hard yeah i have no i mean it's, i'm in the same situation you know 90 percent of my activities were cancelled or they're postponed um mm. and mm. in my case the things that used to be uh, kind of modest but regular so, i.e working for things like universities they're now in a really dire straits as well. So the bits and pieces of teaching and uh, workshopping and advising students through their universities, that's going to be tough in the period ahead because they're all, not all of them. Some of them, yeah. of course, are prosperous, but the ones that I was hanging out with, are, you know, they've got their own problems. And so hmm. there's nothing certain. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, so the good thing is <clears throat> it's so extreme that it's the first time, you know, I'm one of those people who, like many of us, prone to anxiety about insecurity. I'm not a secure person financially at all. But mm. we're all in it together, and um, we have a three-month holiday on kind of uh, you know mortgage payments and basic you know, and utilities here in France. So for the first time, I think, okay, I'm simply not going to freak out about that for three months because that's going to be put that off to one side. Yeah. And uh, everybody is in the same boat, you know, where I live here yeah. in around 60% of the population of our small villages um, in one way or another unemployed or some, you know, informally employed or living, you know, in a sort of precarious way, but they've been like that always. That's partly why they come here to be away from the high cost city, city sort of lifestyle. So many, many people around here live on tiny amounts of money and with a lot yeah. of solidarity and helping each other. So I'm not, I don't want to romanticize it, but it's not been the sort of body blow it would be if you were living in the middle of a city with a massive yeah. mortgage yeah. and children and so on. And no garden and no outdoor space. It is it's that, very tough yes. for people at the moment, very tough. And I think it's going to, you know, as, as I was saying to my wife this morning, I think we're in for the long haul on this one. I think I, I can't see it just being 
a pill to swallow, so to speak, and it you know just magically disappears. I think it's going to have no. long term effects. It's not going to magically disappear, but um, all mm. and anybody who knows what's going to happen is you know not really be honest. I don't have a clue what's going to happen, except I, I, I'm like you. I don't think it's going to suddenly disappear. Yeah, and I have kind of tr- as a pretty explicit decision not to try to fill the airways full of my thoughts and solutions because I literally everything I've said about it or thought to myself or to others I've done five years ago and so what we're now experiencing is things happening that many people predicted would happen without actually taking it seriously we know not really believing it would but now guess what the shit has hit the fan and now we're looking at experiencing the consequences and uh, yeah yeah, I mean, there's never been a better time really for, as I remember you saying to me in in Barcelona when we met a couple of years ago, you were like, your podcast, human-centered design, it should be called life-centered design. And it's, (laughs) and I remember going, you're dead right, John, you're dead right. And And Jerry, I I actually went, we had a whole discussion and maybe we should revisit that about um, what would be in such a kind of podcast. But I just, this particular moment, we should just you know be kind to each other and not kind of give each other lists of to-do lists or thou shalt learn the lessons you know repent all that stuff is not helping anybody well as you say uh, as you say in your book john from me to we isn't that right yeah well i i must say that you know the whole um subject of you know what is happening to us is rather easily described the world is unhealthy people are you know the whole stuff about these weird things called pre-existing conditions. Um, if you actually ask, you know, I know a few kind of doctor type people, and I said, what is a pre-existing condition? They say, oh, obesity, hypertension, stress, basically the conditions that vast amounts of people in the so-called developing world have. Yeah. And they they have these conditions because the world and their lifestyles and the way we the food we eat is so bad. So yeah. it's not actually complicated. And but, so but all, yes, I don't think that now is the time to have that discussion. But, you know, if we want to know now, what do we do? Well, now what we do is we do what we knew before, which is to make the world healthier rather than less healthy. Yeah. But Starting it's also, with our own little bit. But it's also with the pre-existing condition thing. It's like a little caveat that kind of go, oh, okay, they had a pre-existing condition. They, they must have been sick already. Um, there's that's the cynic in me when I when I hear those things. But there was a a boy I read last night. He's 14 years old in the UK, who in the paper said he had a pre or had no pre existing conditions and uh, had died, unfortunately, in the UK last night. So um, I think that whole kind of pre existing condition thing is can easily be overused. And um, it's it's I think this thing is is not selecting people based on on anything. It's just it's it's random. It's. it's I think it's. I I am not an expert, and I really you know very I simply won't start pontificate about most things, but about this not. But I just think that to me as a human being, it makes sense that if the world is causing people to live in unhealthy ways, then things are going to go wrong from time to time, as they yes. are now. Just yes. very practical stuff. I can't imagine in a million years getting on an airplane again and feeling relaxed. Can you? I mean, no, sitting no. in a tube with all that air being sort of circulated around. I mean, it, I just don't see, and I'm not a kind of virtuous person. I fly too much in my past life, as you know, but I can't see myself ever doing that in a relaxed way ever no. again, let alone getting on a cruise liner. You know, who <laughs> in their <clears throat> right mind would do such a thing? 
And no. so I think there are all sorts of consequences that we, of course, haven't taken seriously, but some of them are going to be, you know, radical changes to daily life activities that we haven't really thought through yet. So Yeah, um, no, absolutely. I, I, when I was chatting yesterday to, to Sophie Lovett, I said, um, like, I wouldn't feel comfortable going to the cinema, say, in six months' time, knowing that this is still out there in, in society. And, yes. you know, the, the same thing for a football match or any of those large-scale kind of events. I don't yes. think I feel comfortable for a long time, like to to be around you know numbers of people. It's it's going to be going back to basics and and really like you know sitting in the background. Well, the only and, thing against this argument, Jerry, which I share with you, is that <clears throat> I live in a small town and I have done for nearly twenty years in France. So I'm a prop. I can in my own fantasy, I'm a kind of country boy, and yeah. so when I go to, for example, London, which I haven't for a long time, but I. It takes me, I come to London, I arrive at Victoria Station and I see a million people surging towards me, leaving for the, their week, going for their weekend. If they're not surging through the railway station, there are millions of people outside, pubs screaming and getting drunk. And I think, this is a nightmare. I, how do people tolerate this for a second? Within two days, I'm one of them. I just adapt. So I yeah. think that although now you think, oh, we never go back to that, I have a strange, human beings are amazingly good at forgetting, but also adapting. So, yeah. although at the true. moment I can't imagine ever getting in a plane again, maybe in a year's time I'll forget all about this fear or yeah. sort of nervousness. Yeah. And, uh, we'll just do it like everybody else. But I don't know. I doubt it. There's a very wonderful essay called City of Seeds about another weird group of people called paleobotanists who study the things that grow in the, when people blow up buildings and all sorts of weird things grow again. So if that's interesting, there's another world of subjects out there, which isn't the other stuff that we get preoccupied by. Nice. John, <laughs> it's, 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 as always, it's, it's great to speak to you. Um, if people want to reach out to you, how might they do it? They can just look for thackera.com, which is my website. Uh, or I have now reopened my Facebook page called Meetup Thackera. And um, I'm meeting, which was designed for when we're going to all meet up here physically. But since that's all gone into mm. suspension, we're looking at meeting up online. So that's another place to catch up. Okay, I'll throw links to that and also your Twitter as well because it's it's an active Twitter's yeah. Twitter's <laughs> not a I'm, I'm not proud of twittering so much, but it's where it's what I do. My generation does Twitter, I'm afraid. I can't yeah. get Instagram going and I can't do TikTok because I'm thirty thousand years <laughs> too old. So um yeah, what do I know? Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm so all over those things. And if anyone like I, I'm not doing this because of a, of a book promotion kind of thing, but How to Thrive in the Next Economy is a phenomenal book to be read at this moment in time. And if you can get your hands on it, I know John has thrown out a few um, snippets on his Twitter feed in the last couple of days. I think I saw. Is that right, John? I just realized that that book, which came out five years ago, is perfect for today and was very not perfect when it came out. So I'm just mm. being a bit shameless. saying will read it now, even if you didn't read it then. And um, yeah. I, it's just filled with just stories that make me happy. So that's what its, it's whole function is at, really. Absolutely. And if you enjoyed this this podcast, um, you know, a lot of the, the content that we discussed today is covered off in that book. John, it was great chatting with you. Hopefully chat to you again soon. Same to you, Jerry. It's been a pleasure and you're doing a wonderful thing here. Thank you so much. If you like this podcast and like what we're doing and want to try and support us, we now have This Is HCD Premium, where you can access the content earlier and get exclusive content and a richer experience by subscribing. To do so, go to premium.thisishcd.com. 
Now, I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you'd like to be part of the conversation or community, hop on over to thisishcd.com where you can request to join the Slack community and help shape future episodes and connect with other designers from around the world or join the HCD newsletter. Subscribe to content on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and listen to any of our other podcasts, such as Getting Started in Design and Bringing Design Closer with myself, Jerry Scullion, Power of Ten with Andy Pillane, Decoding Culture with Dr. John Curran, ProdPod with Adrian Tan, Ethnopod with Jay Hasbrook, Worldwide Waste with Jerry McGovern, Moments of Change with Melanie Raymond, and Talking Shop, our community podcast with myself and Andy Pillane. Thanks for listening and see you next time.